This time on Culture File, we continue our swim with art critic Jennifer Higgy into five centuries of women's self-portraiture. And we begin this time with Artemisia Gentileschi, the Baroque painter who just last year was the subject of the first ever large-scale retrospective of a woman artist in London's National Gallery. And like last time, if you look at at Culture File Pod on Twitter now, you'll see the Artemisia Gentileschi self-portrait we're discussing this time. Artemisia had a remarkable life. Artemisia Gentileschi, a truly great Baroque painter, much better known now since this huge, wonderful exhibition at the National Gallery in London. Her father was a painter, and that was why she had access to training. She suffered terribly when she was uh, 17. She was raped by a colleague of her father's, who was also her painting tutor, and this went to trial. It was a horrible, long, drawn-out trial. She was tortured during it to see if she was telling the truth. We actually know what happened in the trial because there's a 300-page document. Her rapist was convicted, which was quite unusual for the time, and he was banished from Rome, but he was friends with the Pope, so he didn't really get banished at all. And she was married off, marriage of convenience, also to show that she was a... You know, a woman of virtue, which is ironic considering that she was the one who'd been violated. Um, she had five children, four of them died. Artemisia, she pulled herself up by the bootstraps. She was illiterate at the time of the trial. Uh, she taught herself to read and write as well as to become one of the great painters of the Baroque. She ended up becoming like great friends with Galileo, who she had a long correspondence with. Um, she painted for all of the great sort of nobility in Italy. Her father had been invited to England by Charles II, and he invited Artemisia to come over and work alongside him. And it's probably in London where she painted this um, great self-portrait in 1638. She depicts herself as the allegory of painting. And there were very codified rules at the time for what language allegories would use. And, for example, if you had an allegory of painting, which this is, so she's depicting herself as embodying painting. She had to have unkempt hair and wear this very particular pendant around her neck and be placed in a certain way. And so she's, she's following the rules of the day, but then she's sort of blowing them apart as well because she's depicting herself as the embodiment of art. She's too busy to look out at the viewer. She's looking up at the painting. It's an incredibly active painting. We're looking at it from downwards looking up and we can see her you know she's almost sweating she's working so hard she's disheveled she's holding her palette high up she's wielding her paintbrush you know it's a brilliantly active animated picture of a woman at work in the 17th century a fantastic British Mexican surrealist and and she grew up in great wealth actually in England and she was expected to follow the life of an aristocratic young girl she didn't she at the age of 18 she met Max Ernst at a dinner party in London the Max Ernst the surrealist 
He was in his 40s. They ran away to Paris and then they lived in the south of France and they painted alongside each other. You know, the, the surrealists were interesting. I mean, despite being surrealists and being, you know, wild of imagination, they were also quite conservative. Often women were just relegated to being muses or beautiful wild, wild childs. You know, Leonora Carrington was young and very beautiful and she was a wild child and so she sort of ticked all of those boxes. But in later years, when she was asked about her role as a muse, she said, I had no time to be a muse. I was too busy becoming an artist. So in 1938, she paints this picture. She's in her 20s. She pictures herself inside, but her hair is blowing as if she's in a high wind. She's in white jumpers. And for her, she always loved animals. She was a vegetarian who always was very passionate about animals. And she always said that some of her animals were her best friends. And so behind her, framing her head, is a white rocking horse, which is, to my mind, it's symbolic of, you know, the freedom of the horse, but it can't go anywhere because it's a rocking horse. And this is almost like what she's saying about herself as a woman at the time, you know, that she's, her freedom is constrained. But out the window, we can see a wild horse galloping into the distance. And to my mind, this is her sort of self-portrait of her soul, you know, her her free the freedom of her soul and in front of her is a very strange beast it's a lactating hyena which she's holding her hand out to and it's almost as if she she wants to be suckled by this wild animal um so it's a wonderfully strange and, and potent self-portrait from 1938 you know within a few years she would be living in mexico trying to escape the war she ended up in madrid where she had a terrible time she was placed in a lunatic asylum her parents bizarrely sent her nanny in a submarine to rescue her but um she escaped her nanny uh, she ended up marrying a mexican diplomat um, as a marriage of convenience got to mexico divorced him then married someone else and lived the rest of her life in mexico city which she absolutely loved and became one of the great surrealist artists of the 20th century John, her brother was the very famous Augustus John, and he was hugely famous in his day. I mean, he was like a, a Damien Hirst or a Tracy Emin in his day. He was larger than life, he was very talented, he slept with everyone, he had multiple wives and millions of children. His sister Gwen John was very quiet, but I think that she had a very turbulent soul. She painted alongside him at the Slade, the Slade School of Art in London. But she soon moved to Paris. And when she was in Paris, she modelled for Rodin, the great sculptor Rodin, and they actually had a very long affair. Interesting now, I think that she is held in far greater esteem than her brother. This picture was painted in 1902 when she was still living in London. She's a young woman. You can sense that there's something very steely and strong. She's looking out at us. She's not smiling. And she pictures herself against a, a rather drab brown background. But she has this wonderfully vivid red shirt, which I think is symbolic of the passion of her soul and, and the fierceness of her temperament. You know, there are terrible stories of the Royal Academy, women beating on the door of the Royal Academy for years and years and years in London. But the Slade School was one of the first schools in London to really allow women to study. And they were great champions of women artists, actually, although there were very strict rules. And we've got to remember that when she painted this, you know, women didn't have the vote. It was pretty much considered the property of the husbands, fathers and brothers. And this is a wonderful self-representation of autonomy and strength.
Jennifer Higgy there, and the reporter was Rachel Andrews. Jennifer Higgy's book, The Mirror and the Palette, Rebellion, Revolution and Resilience, 500 Years of Women's Self-Portraits, is out now.